you know, throughout my career, I've met people in pretty much almost every field there is. Uh, when I think about it carefully, I've talked to artists and writers and actors and politicians, firefighters, first responders, police, accountants, tax collectors, architects, engineers, scientists, and really, honestly, that list could go on for a while. Now, I always thought, well, all of us, we all meet people from all walks of life all the time. And we do, for the most part. I know my job just gives me the chance to meet a lot of people, probably more than the average person would. But it kind of shocked me when I saw the statistic that says that most Americans have never met a journalist. Like one in five Americans have ever met a reporter or a journalist. Well, of course, no wonder you guys hate us. No wonder you think we're fake. If you've never met one, you have nothing to reference. Well, that's what I hope this podcast is going to fix. I know that you're not meeting these people up close, but I'm hoping that these conversations kind of open up a window into our lives so that you could see that, again, we're just ordinary people trying to do the best job possible. And, you know, to be honest, you let me know. When you think about a reporter or a journalist, I'm, I'm willing to bet you're probably going to come up with a fictional one first. Uh, of course, the most famous one is still Clark Kent, right? Superman and Lois Lane. And then you had Jonah Jameson. He was the editor uh, for the newspaper in the Spider-Man comics. You think about movies and you think about Charles Foster Kane from Citizen Kane. You think about Zoe Barnes from House of Cards. And then you think about how sad it was the way they killed her off in that series. Oof. And throughout the years, you think about how, from comic books to movies to television shows, how reporters and journalists have been depicted. You know, sometimes they're the hero, like in All the President's Men or Spotlight. Uh, and sometimes they're depicted as just god-awful, horrible people. Yeah, I always think about, like, Rita Skeeter uh, from the Harry Potter movies. She was really bad. And yes, to be honest with you, all of it is close to reality. Many journalists are just, like I said, just average, ordinary people doing a job. And I'll say it, some of them are self-serving, narcissistic jackasses who are interested in nothing more than just stirring up the ant hill just to watch the ants get angry. We're the ants. In this podcast, I want you to meet journalists I believe represent the majority of us in this industry. Again, average ordinary folks trying to do the best job we can. We're not perfect. We're going to make mistakes, but we're not here to gain recognition or to be loved or to have a ton of followers on Instagram. At times, this is a thankless job, but we're here because it's an important job. It's a very important job and we believe in it. I want you to meet David Plasas. He's the director of opinion and engagement at the Tennessean newspaper in Nashville, Tennessee. I met David years ago when we were uh, living in Fort Myers. I was working at WGCU Public Media, and he was at uh, the news press, the newspaper there in town. And he's got a lot of interesting things to say about how people view journalists and uh, you know what we as journalists should be doing you know, when it comes to public perception. Plus, he also has a really interesting project that he worked on over the last few years about civility, but he'll get into that as well. But first, I just want you to meet him. So I figure, you know what? 
let me just introduce you to him and you get to know a little bit more about what he does. I am uh, an opinion and engagement director, so there's two aspects to that. The opinion part, which means I'm a columnist. Um, I write a weekly column. Uh, I also uh, host a video podcast and curate two newsletters called Tennessee Voices and Latino Tennessee Voices, amplifying uh, voices of people in our community. Uh, I also lead a team uh, in engagement, which is about both virtual and in-person uh, events and experiences. It could be a storytelling where we bring people from the community to tell their stories, or uh, uh, I've done forums on public education, on public transportation, and also issues of affordable housing. Uh, it's basically to help people understand uh, the world around them. And even as an opinion editor, my philosophy is not that I should you know, tell you what to think, but rather my philosophy is that using my expertise and reporting skills I should help guide conversations and lead people to places where they can do some more research and hopefully gain trust in my ability to show them that I, I want to be an honest broker and convener of important conversations. That's a really interesting point. We're going to get to that, too, about how people view what we do. But what, what got you into journalism in the first place? When did it all start for you? So um, when I was a kid, I never thought that journalism could be a career. I always loved writing, uh, but my father, I'm a son of immigrants, one from my dad, dad from Colombia, my mom from Cuba, and they were of that mentality of you've got to choose one of three professions. You're going to be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer. Pick one. And I chose law because I said, you know, that's where that's the closest thing to writing. And, and um, so I was a pre-law student in college studying political science, uh, but kept on writing a law just for, for my own enjoyment. And then I went to study abroad in Spain for a year and a combination of writing for a magazine there called Anathema, of all things, uh, and also writing long form letters. This was back in the 90s um, to a mentor of mine who said, you can't go to law school. You've got to write. And I'm thinking to myself, I told my dad when I came back home, I said, I'm going to be a writer. And you can see the dollar signs just evaporate from his head. It's like, you know, you're going to be poor and miserable. And, uh, and it, you know, journalism to start doesn't pay very well, to be honest. But uh, after a while, you know, it does, you can make a living. Um, and, and I've been in the field now for 22 years, uh, starting off as a reporter uh, in uh, Southwest Florida, where you and I met um, in Fort Myers. Uh, and I was working for the news press for 14 years and a combination of jobs, got to be a Spanish language editor, I then uh, became an opinion editor for a, a concept called a community conversation editor, because the goal was, you know, the, the age of the opinion editor who's stuck in his or her office, just waiting to retire and telling people, you know, this is what you should think today. You know, that to me didn't work out, but I did love going into the community, talking to people. And that was from my Spanish language uh, newspaper experience, having to understand the conversations around tables at quinceañeras, at uh, baptisms, um, to understand what the issues that people were really caring about. And in many cases, they were economic issues, uh, you know, issues of, of acceptance. Uh, and that has guided me on this path, you know, with, with two years of um of exception where I was a, a digital editor, which is a very interesting job. Um, you know, I've been in the opinion and engagement field and um, my role in Nashville, I moved in 2014, uh, expanded from just leading the Tennesseans uh, opinion team to now leading the statewide and region team uh, in Tennessee and also in the South. So I'm, it's, it's been a great opportunity to get to know communities. Um, and for me, you know, what's really interesting, I think because I am uh, the son of immigrants. I've, I, you know, uh, someone once said to me that I, I belong everywhere and nowhere because I, I am comfortable in spaces that people might not want to be in, um, and uh, you know, I, so that for me, the curiosity aspect of it allows me to 
really thrive with sometimes uncomfortable conversations. Um, in the South, you know, the issue of Confederate monuments is one of those. And we have had um, a series of uh, projects related to that because uh, it is a very uncomfortable topic on the one hand, because it's presumed that, you know, this is part of the heritage when in fact that it's a lot more complicated than that. And then it also has subjugated so many people, especially people of color. Uh, so these conversations, elevating and amplifying those voices really uh, makes me very excited. You know, you've been in the, in the newspaper business now for a couple of decades and I've, and I've seen so many changes, but I'm looking at it from the outside. Help us understand what's been going on and the positives and negatives, but a lot has changed in, in these last two decades. Yeah, it's been a business model issue, really. You know, the newspapers peaked in about 1990. There were over, I believe, over 1,400 newspapers at the time, or maybe closer to 1,800. There were, it was a lot. Uh, and it was a time where advertising ruled the business model. And, you know, people were making money hand over fist. Profit margins were in the 40 and 50 percent. Um, you know, margin, which is which is enormous. Imagine like a grocery store has a has a margin of two percent. You know, so you're talking about a business that is extremely uh, cash flow heavy. And uh, you know, it was a time when you had you know multiple reporters on, at beats, uh, and things changed with the advent of um, the internet uh, as being the preferred consumer tool. So there are a couple of things that that happened. You know, on the one hand, the newspaper industry wasn't ready for that change as it should have been because the money was being made still. And then we had a little known thing, a little uh, uh, business called Craigslist, which decimated the classifieds ads. It used to be a hugely profitable part of, of newspapers and suddenly you have free classifieds and people are like, oh, it's free. It's much like in many cases, I compare the newspaper's journey to the situation with music and Napster. You know, people um, want music, they want information, but they're not willing to pay for it. And, you know, Newspapers were having a really hard time trying to figure out how do we get people to pay for it? Do we give away the website for free, keep the print newspaper? And over time, we've seen a trend where print consumption has been declining, but online consumption has been skyrocketing. I almost I compare it almost to a horse and buggy and a Tesla. You know, people want the, the transportation, but now they want it more modern. They want it in a way that will suit their needs today. And we've also had the situation of ownership models, you know, some companies going bankrupt, some companies being bought out by hedge funds, um, some newspapers getting decimated because certain companies have been, have just wanted to make that, that profit without respect to the journalism. So that's created the perception that the newspaper industry is dying. I can tell you it's, it's thriving. And I, and I belong to an organization called the News Leaders Association. We're actually convening in Nashville in May for a conference of newspaper publishers, it's very much alive, but it's, it's a challenge because many of us are switching or have been switching to a subscriber model, which um, you know is relatively new for us. Because again, as I mentioned, you know it was advertising model was what was really the, the big thing in, in in the 20th century. I wonder someday where maybe there's no more physical newspapers. You know, which may or may not be a bad thing, but it's not that newspapers are disappeared. It's just that the paper is gone. Is that a bad thing? Well, I mean, it's hard to say because when people ask me for predictions, you know, I also remind people that vinyl has made a comeback, <laughs> you know, and you know, people sometimes people like a tactile and kind of more old school, you know, because of that nostalgia. So, you know, I, I can't predict when newspapers will have their final day. I still think there is, you know, the number of people that I talk to every single day from, you know, the consumers to the public, the people who like that experience of being able to turn the page. Um, because there's one thing that online doesn't give you. If you look at online analytics, you know, digital consumers are not going to read the entire newspaper. 
you know, but print newspaper readers generally will. They'll go cover, cover to cover. They want to see what stories are important. One of the problems we've had is because of early deadlines, because, you know, print, um, the publications have been, uh, you know, consolidated, is that you can't offer, you know, the, the previous day's news the next day like you used to. Uh, you know, um, for example, at, at the Tennessean in Nashville, we don't publish in Nashville, we publish in Knoxville, Tennessee. And so that uh, creates costs, that creates time lag. So if you have a sports game that's at eight o'clock at night, it's not going to make it in the print paper the next day. And so you're trying to train people to say, well, go to the e-edition and go to the, the, the digital edition. And some people have, and other people are like, no, no, I, I just want my print paper. But I, I'm glad I, I love those people because, um, you know, they're really dedicated. They're loyal. I mean, there's people who've been reading for decades. So I'm not, I don't begrudge them. And I'm still a print reader um, in part because I want to understand how my consumers, you know, read and, 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 and take in that, that print experience. And I also you know, do a lot of digital work. That's we're primarily digital first now. So it, that, that's important for me to also do the, you know, audio visuals, the, the, the podcast, all that other stuff. You're hearing my conversation with David Plazas, the Director of Opinion and Engagement at the Tennessean in Nashville. We're talking about a specialty, which is engagement. How do we communicate with the community? How do we start these conversations with different people within that community? Uh, David brought up another interesting point. How do newspapers make money in a world where so much information on the internet is free? That's a really good point. It's something we've all been trying to figure out. I think some organizations have figured it out and others are still trying to. By the way, you can learn more about David and his work on this site, thereporterstudio.com, also on my LinkedIn or YouTube channel, and I have links to those, by the way, on the site. And remember, listen to other segments on the website, find us on iTunes, Spotify, we're now on Google Podcast, Amazon Music, and in Podbeam. And remember, I want to hear from you. What questions do you have about journalism and journalists? What do you want to know about how we make the news every day? How we pick stories? How we do our research? How we decide the people we want to talk to for that story? Send those questions or comments again on the LinkedIn or YouTube pages or again at thereporterstudio.com and I'm going to try to answer them for you. Let's get back to our conversation with David Plasas. I saw a, uh, you did a Nashville TEDx. And as I was watching this video, this is so fascinating. You were talking about that it's about having informed citizens. And if they're informed citizens, then they will reject misinformation. I'm wondering your take first on how social media has really made this challenging for us. Because, and I can't remember where I saw the statistic, but that for every piece of factual information that's out there, there's like nine or 10 pieces of misinformation. You're trying to put the news out there. You're trying to put out the truth and you're battling with Facebook and, and Instagram and TikTok posting stuff that is, is nonsensical. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely a challenge. And I think this is why um, and it's a particular challenge for journalists, because we have been used to being flies on the wall for so long. And now we have to be active participants in trying to manage conversations. And we're also human, too, because we're also trying to share our own personal experiences, because we found or I found at least 
that if I'm, I'm not a cardboard cutout, if I'm an actual human being, people are going to connect with me. Uh, and some of the data that we've seen even as, you know, a decade ago shows that people tend to believe their friends over institutions. You know, if we look at the Gallup poll since the 1970s, the uh, trust in institutions, whether it's Congress or whether it's, you know, media outlets, has just plummeted. Uh, but the funny thing is, with the, the parallel with Congress is that incumbents, keep, for the most part, keep on getting elected, you know, <laughs> uh, every single time. And, you know, I found in my own experience that as a journalist, when I connect and meet people and talk to people and I'm responsive, people may say, you know, I don't always agree with you. I don't always, you know, but but I, I take you seriously and I, and I trust you. And, and that's really important because it's so easy to lose trust immediately. I mean, you know, a bad tweet. I often tell, especially younger people, younger journalists, it's like, you know, if you don't have to tweet it, don't, you know, take a walk if you're angry about something, because frankly, it's going to live with you forever. I mean, a deleted tweet is never truly deleted. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's these common sense things that, you know, I, I guess I, I was glad that I grew up in the analog era where I am not, um, you know, completely hooked on my phone, you know, most of the time, although we've all become addicted in a sense, but where I can, I can take breaks from it and um, because it's not my world, but it is the world for a lot of people, you know, whether it's an Insta post or um, Instagram post or whether it's something on Facebook. The, the problem is that there are a lot of people who will say something without checking it out, you know, and we as journalists, um, it's kind of like the funny, uh, you know, motto, which is if your mom tells you she loves you, check it out. You know, we we're always about um, checking things out and, and and verifying things. And and that's what our value proposition is. But it's very difficult when people have made up their minds. And especially during these last two years with COVID, um, it's been really instructive because, uh, you know, there were legislatures, including Tennessee's, which passed resolutions saying that the media was sensationalizing COVID. This was back in the summer of 2020. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, you know, and, and we have to think strategically too, as opinion editors, you know, it, it, there was, it used to be a day where you just, you know, hear a politician say something that was terrible. Uh, and, and you say, you know, how dare this person? And that way of talking, you know, you'll be tuned out. On the other hand, if you appeal to people's common sense, sometimes you, you can get through. I'll, I'll give you just a, a quick uh, example of that. We had a speaker of the house who was involved in scandal in the state. And I knew that if I wrote an editorial calling on him to resign, he was just going to laugh it off and just say, look, this is the left wing media. Instead, I wrote a piece appealing to his caucus saying, is this the person who represents your values? Because if it's not, you have to make a decision on whether or not he should be your leader. Two weeks later, he was gone. And like, so, so there are approaches that one has to be creative because of this issue of, of trust. Uh, well, you know, I, I don't know what's going on in Tennessee, but you, I, I know that you know what's happening in Florida and that, no, it's, yes, I, I mean, <laughs> and, and look, it's, it's, how do you say it without, yeah, sounding partisan? It's like, it's this constant battle trying to cover the pandemic. And then you have a governor <laughs> who has been fighting that the whole way and, and be trying to appeal to a certain type of voter. And that's true. Uh, one of the things that, that I saw in that video that I thought was fascinating, it was a story. You were going around talking to different groups and someone came up to you and said, why should we trust you? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, okay. And I think it was the TEDx talk was about the 2020 election, but I think you may have been referencing 2016. Yeah, it was, it was the midterm elections. of 20, it, was, oh. it was both 2016 and 2018. And the context was this. I went to a small rural town in Tennessee to a Rotary Club, and it was the start of a campaign we had called Civility Tennessee about advancing civil discourse. Uh, and after I gave my spiel, the gentleman stood up and said, why should we trust you? And it was because he had um, basically, uh, you know, said, you know, well, you, you called the election wrong. You said that Hillary was going to win. 
and and uh, you know and not me as a person but you know media outlets who uh, showed all the polling that Hillary Clinton was ahead and and you know and we feel we feel that we can't trust your your reporting and i was just recently back in that town to the rotary club again in february uh, to come, it was it was a, a wonderful conversation but i also at that point had developed enough trust where i could bring up some very difficult subjects like january 6th for example and even the language that i use on that depending on where i'm at you know i i I, through the help it's of, of several advisors and mentors and interviewees that I've done, interviews that I've done, you know, I, I've developed a, a better language in especially rural communities where we talk precisely not about hyperbolic language, but we can talk about the fact that there were crimes committed on January 6th and that those, um, you know, criminals or accused criminals need to be punished for that. Uh, and oftentimes, you know, I've, I've received a retort. I don't know if you've had this some experience with people say, well, what about Black Lives Matter in 2020? And I come back and say, well, well, what about it? Which case? Which situation? And then AP just had an article that showed that there are, you know, over 300 people who've been uh, accused of crimes, dozens imprisoned from the uh, stemming from the demonstrations. Uh, so there has been justice. But this is one of the things that that can be frustrating is that there's kind of a, a whataboutism that uh, um, that is that is dangerous because. If we Americans can't agree on the same facts, I and mean, we're in a situation where, like in Florida or Tennessee or Texas, you know, you have these completely different realities. And um, you know, I, as as, as someone, if, if you know, hypothetically speaking, if I could say, well, we need more voting rights because I'm I'm afraid that the election was stolen. And when you ask someone in Tennessee, you know, well, do you think the Tennessee election system? works. It's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, Donald Trump got all electoral votes. Of course it worked here in Tennessee. <laughs> and then it's like, well, but what, why is Georgia's wrong? Why is Texas's wrong? And when you have to ask these questions, I think, and you can do so in a way that appeals to people's sense. Unfortunately, the politics of today have become so bombastic uh, and so personality oriented that it, it can be very difficult to, difficult to cut through that. Again, you're listening to The Reporter's Studio, a production of City of Dreams Media Incorporated. We're talking with David Plassas, the Director of Opinion and Engagement at the Tennessean in Nashville. You can learn more about his work on this site or, again, go to the LinkedIn channel or the YouTube link that I've shared with you on that site. But what do you think about what he said about reporters not being present enough in conversations with everyday people? You know, it goes back to what I asked you earlier. If you've never met a journalist, what should we be doing to help you understand better who we are and what we do? What do you want to know about how we make the news? Ask your questions again on this website, on the LinkedIn page or the YouTube page. Again, the website is thereporterstudio.com. By the way, I would just want to take a moment again to remind you this is a podcast brought to you by the City of Dreams Media Incorporated, and that company's coming out with another podcast later this spring. It's called Planet Earth 2072. We're very concerned because we don't see any restraining force on continued increase in temperature. We're still increasing. We're still getting more heat trapped into the oceans. And see what... No doubt about it. We're living in a warmer world. We're living in a melting world. As the polar ice melts, sea levels are going to rise, and a lot of... What will Miami look like in 50 years? That's the question that's posed in the podcast, Planet Earth 2072. Because as we move 
further into the future, things are going to become more uncertain. I think they should be pretty ticked off. I mean, really, and they are. And once they understand it, they realize they can prepare in whatever field they want. Is Miami is compromised. There's a small population still living here on the high ground, on the ridges. We spoke with scientists and researchers, climate activists, and also Gen Zers. Set in stone, we're going to see two to three feet of sea level rise from the damage that we've already done, and I don't think we're prepared for it like we think we are. But it's not really individuals who need to wake up, it's politicians and corporations who need to wake up because politicians and corporations are contributing the most to this, uh, to climate change. And I feel like more kids are going to join the movement and more adults are also realizing the importance of it. And I think that, you know, maybe it's like 2050, but I feel that- Many of us won't be alive to see the day, but the youngest generation, Gen Z, they will. What sort of world awaits them? Tune in to Planet Earth 2072, coming out later this spring. That's Planet Earth 2072, the podcast. Learn more about it on the website, planetearth2072.com. Also on Facebook. That again coming out later this spring into early summer. Let's get back to our conversation with David Plassas from The Tennessean. Coming back to that idea, though, is somebody coming up and asking you, why should we trust you? And I get the sense that one of the things we have to be careful about, we as journalists, is that we are listening and talking to people and not at them, that we're not sitting up top here and telling them, this is what's going on, just believe us, that we need to be on their level. That's what I gathered. Am I? Did I interpret that correctly? Yeah, because it goes uh, to the issue of empathy, and it goes to the issue of, of um, you know, meeting people where they're at. Um, because as, uh, you know, as we were preparing for this conversation, you know, there's research from Pew Center and also American Press Institute that show that only about a fifth of Americans have ever met a journalist. So they're assuming that the journalist is someone who just has a gotcha mentality that is going to try to embarrass them, that is going to look down upon them, especially if they're not college educated or if they live in a rural community, because there's this perception that we are elites, uh, you know, who are out to, you know, just go after Republicans, you know, who are, you know, aligned with Democrats. But the reality is when we, we look at journalism across the country, you know, even where there's a majority, supermajority of Democrats, like in California, journalists are relentless about scrutinizing power. And so it just so happens that in Florida and in Tennessee and in Texas, uh, you know, the supermajority Republican legislators are there and they're the ones who are making the decisions that are having real impacts. You know, one of the things that I've been following because Florida passed its so-called Don't Say Gay Bill, and now there's a proposal in Tennessee and there's a proposal in Louisiana and this is catching wildfire. And, you know, I asked the question in a recent column, you know, why are we doing this? You know, we already know that there's a curriculum. We already know that teachers are held to a high standard. Why are we doing this? Could it be fear mongering? You know, could it be the fact that we are 
you know, trying to scare people into feeling like it's dangerous to be in school, that it's dangerous, uh, that are there. And, you know, and, and, and COVID has allowed for that mentality to exist because people's lives were so disrupted. You had issues of, um, you know, kids suffering from learning loss, kids suffering from mental health uh, situations. And so suddenly you can say, well, and by the way, there's some boogie person who's there in school who's got out to get your kids. And um, so my latest column was about, well, if, if you're going to say that, show us the proof. There was um, a couple of celebrities who went to testify um, to say that, that, you know, librarians, school librarians were pushing porn on kids. And, you know, nobody dared to say, well, where's the proof? When, when they were asked, they couldn't bring it up. They couldn't, they couldn't, uh, they couldn't uh, substantiate their claims. And, and you know, in, in a, a normal world, I suppose, you know, and not the bizarre world that we live in in 2022, people would say, well, that's ridiculous. You know, you know take them out. You know, those big canes that they had on, on stages where you like pull somebody out. I mean, but, but no, I mean, they're taken seriously because it fits into the narrative. You know, I'm going to be a little bit of the cynic. I don't know if things have changed that much over time. I, you know, and David, you and I are almost at the same age. I, I, you say that, and I was reading that, that column and there was a part of me that was going, who, where did this come from and why would you believe it? But then, you know what, you know, one of the things I remembered from my childhood going back to the eighties. Um, I was one of those kids, I'll admit, that I was one of those uh, geeky kids who loved playing Dungeons and & Dragons. And, you know, back in the 80s, go back and look at the headlines. There was a point where people thought that those of us playing that game were practicing Satanism. And that this was this was how they were trying to lead us into Satanism. And, you know, there were parents who were worried, like, what are you guys doing? But I like what you said. I, I think you have there has to be a, a level of empathy. You know what? This is a very general question but i've asked everybody this as a news media what are we doing right and what are we doing wrong right now i think what we're doing right is staying committed to our values of telling the truth of being fair and being accurate of uh you know trying to get to the story and and use the power even with limited resources to get at what the truth is. And I think what we're doing wrong though is not being present enough in conversations with people in the spaces that they're in. So people have the the ability to create these assumptions, to create this bombastic um, rhetoric. Uh, and we, we need to be in the spaces where people are at. Uh, we need to be present and we need to be accessible. And I don't think we always are. Um, I, I, I think related to that punditry uh, is one of my least favorite things um, because uh, the idea of people screaming at each other for the purpose of trying to make a point um, is, I think, very dangerous because uh, our democracy is very fragile, even still. It relies upon people trusting each other and working with each other, compromising with each other. That's why for me, like I am a huge proponent of local um, politics and local government, of people getting involved in their, you know, their city council races, going to board meetings, you know, being informed at that level because you know there's less controversy over building a sidewalk than there is over you know uh, you know funding something from Congress and so you know and then you get to know your neighbors. I mean I, I think that that you know it's difficult when you are you know shopping with someone or maybe going to the same congregation or seeing each other in the park to say I, I dislike this person and I think that that level of vitriol is what's what's very dangerous and it gets fueled by punditry gets fueled by um, by by us when we don't admit to mistakes, because that's really important that we admit to it when we make mistakes, 
and that we continue to gain that, that trust. I, you know, I know you've heard this phrase is that, you know, as journalists, it's not our jobs to become popular. Is it on us to, you know, help people understand who we are, to promote ourselves? Should we be out there doing a PR campaign, trying to help people understand this is what we're supposed to be doing and please don't get us wrong. We're just trying to help. You know, we, we found in terms of studies with advertising that usually it takes about 13 times before somebody notices an ad and makes a call, you know? So the question is we have to be repetitive, you know, when it comes to what we do, because too often people don't know, they may not care, or they may be distracted. Frankly, we have so many distractions out there to to our craft, uh, like social media, like other things that people want to do. Uh, and, and I think that sometimes some people have tuned out. I mean, the number of people who over the last two years who I know personally who've tuned out the news, you know, they don't want to watch the news yet. They also want to know what's going on. <laughs> you know, my parents will call me every now and then is like, you know, what happened this week? So I try to keep myself as informed as possible. And I tell them, you know, just know that, you know, I'm not a perfect person. I have everyone of us has biases, but I will do my best to at least tell you things as I know them, as I see them. And if you want commentary i'm happy to give it if you want um but i think uh you know even in in, in my own opinion writing um I, I did a series on affordable housing back in 2017 uh and it was a year-long series where my goal was to help explain the issue and then come up with a couple solutions uh that are finally being implemented um, over last year here in nashville and it's a very tough issue but it was a very proud moment for me because that ex level of expertise was able to gain trust and credibility in the work that we did on a very important issue where people said, you know, you, the, the Tennessean, me as a columnist, you are the authority on this particular subject and we will listen to you when you write about it and, and, and you're going to help us understand. And we may not agree with your approaches, but at the very least, we respect the fact that you're giving us options to think about. How do you deal with criticism? I mean, you, cause you, you get, you get, <laughs> I mean, as a talk show host, I'll take my fair share, but you will get a lot more than I ever will. Yeah. It, you know, the way that I describe it is that, you know, a lot of times when people say, well, you have to have thick skin. I mean, I, I don't have a thick skin in the sense that, you know, I don't, I don't get, you know, razzled, you know, uh, <laughs> unnerved by, by criticism, but I think it's important to have a thin enough skin where you can be empathetic to where people are oftentimes People will be critical because they don't know who you are or they'll leave a nasty message or they yell or they send a terrible email because they think that you're not going to answer. And then when you do answer, suddenly it's like, oh, it becomes a much better politician, uh, much better um, a conversation most of the time. Um, but I think it's important to listen. We are people in positions of privilege and power. And so we have to be humble about that and know that when people are yelling or screaming, oftentimes it's because they feel they have no other way to express themselves. And then, you know, it's important too when people say something that's that's completely wrong to correct them. And one can do so gently and kindly. And uh, and for me, you know, I meditate every single day. So that helps me gain a sense of uh, poise and balance and allows me to be chill, you know, most of the time. Uh, because, I mean, if you let that criticism meet you, you're, you're not going to be able to focus on the work that you're doing. Taking care of yourself mentally. Absolutely. That's something we all have to do. Let me finish with this, David. You know, we're coming into an interesting time, election year, midterm. What are some of the ideas, the things you're thinking about, you know, again, in, in reaching out to your readers, reaching out to people, you know, maybe to continue that conversation of civility and, you know, how we do our jobs? What, what's What's on your mind as we move forward here? I think uh, people are looking for comprehensive information. So we've even changed the way that we look at local elections. Like it used to be assumed that we were going to endorse candidates. We don't really do that much anymore. 
But we do, you know, for this election, we have a, a, prim a local primary election in May. Um, and I've invited every single candidate to fill out a questionnaire that we've, that our editorial board, which I'm on, have, have created that really goes very deep into their thinking. Um, I also think uh, one of the things that uh, was a happy accident from the pandemic was uh, when I started my video podcast, you know, a couple of weeks after the shutdowns uh, in March of 2020. Uh, and I thought, you know, this will be something nice to do. And 266 episodes later, you know, this has become a vital part of the work that I'm doing. It's bringing leaders, thinkers, innovators from conservative U.S. senators to reproductive rights activists uh, to come on the show to talk about why are they doing what they're doing? What are they worried about? And how are they also coping as leaders with their own self-care? So you get a sense of vulnerability. And I think that's that's really helpful where people can see people as human, which is um, one of the, the biggest concerns that I have for 2024 is the dehumanization of the other, be it, you know, Democrat to Republican or Republican to Democrats. And that that's dangerous. You know, we, we need to, you know, see each other's neighbors as humans and find ways to work through our disagreements. Who would have thought, David, you'd become a TV star, too? <laughs> it, that, it, again an accident happy accident <laughs> you know it, it happens david i man, such a pleasure to talk to you again and i really appreciate the insight and thanks for joining me on the reporter studio no, thank you so much Lisa. it's such a pleasure to see you again after so many years you just heard our conversation with david plasas he's the director of opinion and engagement at the Tennessean in Nashville, Tennessee. You can learn more about him and his work. It's on this site, thereporterstudio.com. Find me also on LinkedIn or on YouTube. I have those links on that website. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at News Media Host. Share with me your thoughts of this podcast. Also post your questions. And that's an important part of this. I want to hear what you have to say. And I don't care. You may hate reporters. You may hate the news media. You may think we're all fake. But all I ask is that you open your mind a little bit and let me help you better understand what it is we do. Maybe I don't change your mind, but at least let me give you a few more facts. Again, find me on Twitter at News Media Host. Coming up next week on the podcast. What I hope we're going to see is work that's rooted in a place from a place and for a place. Newsrooms that exist to work for a community that are employed by people from that community that look like that community. Newsroom has a huge, journalism has a huge um, diversity problem and, and it still does and it's been that way, um, you know, forever. Um, the, we're at an interesting point right now where I think people have realized, particularly because of the pandemic, how vital information is, how much we need it. And Kristen Hare, she's a faculty member at the Pointer Institute in St. Petersburg, Florida. We're going to talk about the importance of local news. Don't forget, you can find this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast, uh, Amazon Music, and now on Podbeam. Find us, subscribe, rate, and review. I really appreciate that. And again, thank you for sharing your thoughts and your questions. This is the Reporter Studio, production of City of Dreams Media Incorporated. I'm Luis Hernandez. We'll talk again soon.